So if you have a Bible with you, um, I would encourage you to turn to our sermon text today. This is from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, that is um, okay. You can uh, find the passage that we're going to be walking through in your bulletin there on page 9. Um, also, there are great smartphone apps for the Bible. Uh, you could download the ESV app or the Uversion Bible app. Uh, those are great places where you can navigate to the passage that we're looking at or other passages that we refer to today. Um, it's, it's great to actually have the passage of Scripture before you. It helps as we walk through it to, to know where we are. Uh, but then also it's important because ideally when we're, when we're looking at God's Word, it's God's Word that is speaking, that, that it's, it's a way of checking to make sure is what is being said here actually reflecting what is in the text. So it's very important that we have the actual text in front of us so you're not just taking my word for it and what we say. And of course, the, the book of 1 Timothy is a, a letter uh, that was written by a man named the Apostle Paul. And he wrote it to a younger man named Timothy, hence the name Timothy. And this is the first letter to Timothy, hence 1 Timothy. Um, and Timothy was pastoring in the, the Greek city of Ephesus. Uh, he was entering a period where there would no longer be living apostles. That was, was drawing to the close of the, the apostolic age, people who knew Jesus face to face and testified to his life, death, and resurrection. And so what Paul's trying to do in this letter is to lay out the doctrine of the church, trying to lay out how does the church live as the church in the world, rooted in the scripture. And so we, we've talked about already the danger of false teaching, but in chapter 3 especially, we looked at the offices of the church, the office of elder, the office of deacon, uh, the, the leadership structure that God has established for his church. And then last week, we looked at the, the mystery of godliness, the verses um, six, well, verse 16 in chapter 3. Uh, and we saw that the mystery of godliness is ultimately the gospel, Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God manifested in the flesh. But today, we're moving back to the theme of false teaching. And, and one commentary has pointed out that in verse 16 of chapter 3, we have the mystery of godliness. And then in a sense, you could call this the, the mystery of ungodliness, the, the mystery of wickedness or the mystery of deceit. That's what we are looking at here in this passage. So again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray. Father, we, we trust that you make food holy by the word of God and prayer. 
But Father, also as we seek to live for Christ, that, that we are ourselves are made holy, that you work holiness in us through your word, through prayer. And so, Father, today we, we pray that you would guide the study of your word, that it would have your desired effect in our lives, that you inspired these verses, not for the edification of our mind alone, but you inspire these verses to instruct us as your church to, to change the way we think, the way we act, the way we live. And so, Father, we pray that these verses would work in our hearts by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme that we are, are exploring today is, as I said, false teaching. But really, how is it that we confront false teaching? Because whether we like it or not, we're going to confront false teaching at some point. Now, if you're, if you're new to, to Christianity, you might say, well, what do we mean by false teaching? And, and false teaching in the Bible is teaching that is contrary to the Bible, to the gospel, the good news of Jesus that strikes at the heart of what Christianity is about. But as we confront false teaching, it doesn't always look like what we expect. It can come in unexpected forms, but even though it can seem subtle, it can seem harmless, it can seem like this is just an idea. Uh, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. How can false ideas hurt me in some way? But what we see here, especially in verse 1, is that this false teaching can lead people to, it says, depart from the faith. And that's not talking about people losing their faith, their salvation. The Bible says that if we have true living faith, that it can be strong at times, it can be weak at times. It's guarded by Christ and his faithfulness. But when it talks about the faith, it's talking about the Christian faith, the, the body of doctrine, the, the, the gospel of Christ that has been handed down to us as the essence of Christianity, that the departing from the Christian religion. And that is the influence of this false teaching on some. And so the first thing that we need to think about then is if we're going to confront false teaching, where does false teaching come from? Where does it come from? We need to know. So look at verse one there in your Bible again. Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says, that, that the Spirit is revealing this, as he reveals all of Scripture, but he's, he's drawing out the fact that, that this is certain, this is predicted by the Spirit of God. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, and by later times, he's not just talking about the, the final days before the coming of Christ, but we are in the later times now. This is the times after the apostles, that in the later times, he says, some will depart from the faith, that people will leave the church, people will leave the gospel, people will abandon the scriptures. And you say, well, how are they going to do this? And he says, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so right there, Paul is talking about where this false teaching comes from. 
And he says that behind the, the bad ideas are bad spiritual beings, that, that there is a, a diabolical force trying to lead people away from the truth of the gospel. And in the, the past few years, we hear a lot about fake news, about disinformation. Uh, we hear a lot about nations intentionally sowing false ideas or disinformation, especially on social media. You think of China or Russia or North Korea or Iran. Uh, they very much want to spread false ideas. And the hope is that those false ideas undermine the integrity, the stability of the United States. And this is how you can think about what Paul is describing here, that behind the, the disinformation, behind the, the false ideas that spread in the church is this sinister, diabolical force, that it's, it's literally coming from the pit of hell, and that the aim of this diabolical force is to undermine the, the faith, to guide people away from true Christianity into something that, that maybe isn't Christianity at all, or maybe even into something that claims to be Christianity, but yet is opposed to the gospel. And therefore, the, the big lesson then here is we need to be careful, we need to be watchful, we need to be aware of where <laughs> this is coming from. But then look again in your Bible at verse 1. We said that it comes from these diabolical forces. He says, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And then he adds, Through the insincerity of liars. And so he's saying that, that yes, there is a, a spiritual dimension. There's a spiritual warfare dimension with the false teaching. But it's not just that the spiritual forces of evil are spreading ideas directly, setting up their own social media accounts to spread false ideas, but, but he's saying that they're working through human agents, through human false teachers. And he says it's through the insincerity of liars, the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. And you look at that, you think of the, the searing of the conscience. What does that mean? And it's this image of someone's conscience, someone's ability of moral self-evaluation, getting branded, as it were, with a, a hot iron, this, this branding on their conscience. And, I mean, just recently I, I got a, a blister from some oil that popped out while I was cooking, and it hurt a lot. And then... Of course, you have the, the wound there that turns into a scab. Um, and and that, that's that horrifying image that he's saying here is true, really, of the false teachers' hearts, that their hearts are seared. Their hearts have spiritual blisters on them that are unfeeling, that their hearts are now unable to feel and to respond to the truth, that, that the false teachers are these spiritual sociopaths, these spiritual psychopaths, these spiritual serial killers who, who are wounding people spiritually, who are hurting people spiritually through false ideas, but they don't feel bad about it. They don't feel guilty. Perhaps they're, they're even un, unaware of what they're doing, 
but yet they're causing spiritual mayhem in the church and the lives of people, leading them away from Christ, the one true gospel. And so again, we need to be careful. We need to be watchful. What Jesus tells his disciples, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Where Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And that's a call that we will face false teaching. That the false teaching, you say, where does it come from? It comes from spiritual forces of evil, from false teachers. And so we need to be wise as serpent, innocent as doves. We need to be careful. So that's the first thing that we need to know where this false teaching is coming from. But then once we know where it's coming from, we need to know what it looks like. We need to know what it looks like so that we can spot it. And it's surprising what it looks like. When you, when you think of teaching that is coming from deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, what pops into your head? And probably you picture something from a Halloween horror movie or from some sort of a haunted house experience or you're picturing Lord Voldemort from Harry Potter or something terrifying, one of the, the evil characters from the Lord of the Rings where it's clear just, just from looking at the person you can tell that there's something wrong here. That's sometimes what we think false teaching looks like and it can come in those more obvious forms. But what Paul is showing here is, is he gives these two examples of what it looks like, and it's not what we expect. It's, it's far more subtle. He says that these false teachers, these people with seared consciences, are those who, verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So he's saying that the, the false teaching that is coming is coming not in the form of some sort of grotesque, Wiccan, Satan-worshipping person, but it's coming in the form of a very pious, religious person. It's coming in the form of somebody who is a religious ascetic, somebody who seems good and who, when you see this person, you'll think, wow, this person has far more self-control than I will ever have. This person is far more moral than I will be. This is a very good person. I can learn from this person. And it says that, first of all, these false teachers are those who forbid marriage. And you say, well, what does that mean to forbid marriage? And it probably means that these would be false teachers who would come and, and tell people, in order to be a faithful Believer, in order to be a, a true Christian, in order to reach the highest level of spirituality, you shouldn't marry. And maybe they would point to Jesus. Well, look, Jesus wasn't married. Maybe they would even point to the Apostle Paul and say, look, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 6 commends the single life and as a, as a noble life for a Christian to live. And so it takes that idea and this is the subtle move where it takes something that is a good thing for a Christian to do that sometimes Christians can be called to a life of singleness 
And it's taking that, that potentially good idea for some and saying that that good idea is the mandatory idea, that this is how you have to live to be a true Christian. But it flies in the face of Scripture because Scripture is clear that, that marriage is good, that God ordained marriage as a gift for humanity. But then also singleness can be good if God calls you to that life. And so it's not that, that one is superior to the other. It depends on your unique situation, your unique calling. But then the, the false teachers come and they try to mandate something that God commends, but then forbid something that God also commends. This is what their false teaching looks like. And you might say, well, what could this look like today? What forms could this take? And I think that, it, that an obvious one, to, to pick on a particular religious group, there is a very large global religious organization that forbids marriage for its clergy. And of course, that would be the Roman Catholic Church that, that since the year 1123 has mandated clerical celibacy, that if you want to be a priest, if you want to be a monk, if you want to be a nun, you have to remain celibate, that there is this forbidding of marriage, not for all people, but for the clergy. But yet still, there's a sense of, of it's, it's saying on some level that, that it's a superior way of life. This is the life that, for the most holy among you, that, that they're the ones who take the, the life of celibacy. Now, some of you may consider yourself Roman Catholic, or maybe you came from a Roman Catholic background, and, and I know that many, even within the Roman Catholic Church that I know, don't like that particular teaching. But I think it is interesting, as we think about what this looks like today, that, that Paul, he could have drawn countless examples of false teaching, but he draws that one of the aspects he draws out is forbidding people from getting married. And that's something that churches have done, churches do today. And it's not just the Roman Catholic Church, um, even the, the shakers, if you see shaker chairs or shaker boxes, they... Uh, I, I, from what I understand, I think there's only one or two shakers left. I have a friend who's very into shaker history, but uh, they forbade marriage. Uh, and they said that if you became perfect, you would immaculately conceive. And over time, there's no more shakers um, because I think that none of them reached perfection. But, it, but the idea is that, that, that especially false teaching can come in the form of making rules that God never gave in the Bible. And telling people, you need to follow these rules that aren't in the Bible in order to really follow the Lord. And that may seem subtle, but what it does is it undermines the very heart of the gospel. It undermines the freedom that we have in Christ. So it could be forbidding marriage, but then Paul says it could also be requiring abstinence from certain foods. And probably initially in the church, what Paul would have in mind are what were called the, the Judaizers, which were a, a group of people who professed Christianity who said that if you were to truly live as a faithful Christian, you need to follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. You have to keep kosher, basically. You can't eat shellfish. You can't eat pork. You have to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And even today, there, there are churches that follow that same path. And so again, I'll just... To give specific examples, I'll pick on another 
uh, religious organization. My, mo all of my dad's family are Seventh-day Adventists. Um, actually, I think it was my great-great-grandfather uh, preached at a Seventh-day Adventist church in German in North Dakota, uh, probably around the turn of the century. So, and and I, I love my family, but the the Seventh-day Adventist church follows a similar path that the Roman Catholic Church follows of forbidding something that the Bible never forbids. Uh, the prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist church, Ellen G. White, taught that to be a true faithful Christian, you have to follow the kosher laws of the Old Testament. They would say Jesus never actually did away with of those rules for believers. Uh, but then it's not only that, that to be a faithful Christian, you have to be vegetarian. So my, my wonderful grandmother never had meat in her whole life. My wonderful great-grandmother who lived to 100 never had meat uh, in her life. And there was a sense that, that this is what God requires. And of course, there's nothing wrong with somebody voluntarily choosing to be vegetarian. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing to do. But yet, what, what the problem that Paul's highlighting here is when people set up a rule that's not in the Bible and say, in order to be a Christian, you have to follow this particular rule. And that may seem harmless to you. You say, it's okay, that's, it's a good idea to be a vegetarian, so why not just go ahead and mandate it? And the problem is, is, that, is that that undermines the, the gospel of Christ because the the gospel says that to be a Christian is to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and to respond to that grace of God in a life of obedience, which doesn't mean just imposing our own moral standard or someone else's moral standard, but seeking to really know the scriptures and to live in obedience to what God has actually given in scripture. And it's, it's amazing how we, there are so much in the Bible, to, such a, a beautiful picture of what it is to live the Christian life. But for some reason, our hearts are not content to follow what God has actually said, that we, we just want to add new rules in addition to the scripture. And whenever we do that, we almost inevitably then add our own rules and then ignore the rules that are actually laid down in scripture. But yet in Christ, we are free. That's why in Galatians 5.1, Paul says, For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't submit to the yoke of slavery that forbids marriage. Don't submit to the yoke of slavery that requires abstinence from certain foods in order to be a faithful Christian. This is what false teaching looks like. So again, we said where it comes from. It comes from the deceitfulness of evil forces, spiritual forces. It comes from false teachers. And it looks like often good religious moral instruction that just happens to tell you and mandate what the Bible does not actually say or command. And then third and, and finally today, if, if we know where it comes from and what it looks like, then we need to know how to confront false teaching. How do we actually avoid the snare of false teaching so that we are not led astray away from the faith? And the first way that we see here that we confront false teaching is through biblical doctrine. 
And so look at verse 4 in your Bible. Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so here Paul is, he could have elaborated more on the prohibition against marriage, but instead, if this was on a computer browser, he's, he's just double-clicked on forbids foods, uh, and then now he's unpacking that more, and he's explaining why that is wrong. He's showing the biblical doctrine behind it. And what he's doing is he's appealing all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where it says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That the Bible affirms the, the goodness of the physical world. And it affirms the goodness of the food that God has given us to consume. And so in our Christian freedom, we have freedom to eat the food that God has provided for us if we receive it with thanksgiving. And so yes, in the Old Testament, there were dietary restrictions that God gave for a purpose. That's another discussion of why God introduced those restrictions for that period. But through the life, death, and resurrection, we've actually returned to the creational design, what was reiterated in the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verse 3, where God told Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Every living thing that moves. Uh, that, and he says, and as, as, and as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. That, that no food is off limits for you. That's the biblical picture. So you can see then how the, just in a few verses, Paul is drawing from biblical doctrine. He's drawing from Genesis 1, from Genesis 9. He's, he's drawing from the, the teaching elsewhere in Scripture that, that Christ has declared all foods clean, uh, as we read in the book of Mark. He's drawing from the book of Acts, chapter 10. He's, he's drawing from the the fact that through the life, death, and resurrection, now the gospel goes out that we're no longer bound to these ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And I think that in giving this little example of opposing this false teaching, that Paul is showing us an example of how to confront false teaching, that we do it through knowing the scripture, through knowing biblical doctrine, through knowing what the Bible teaches. And then actually when we confront an idea that's contrary to the scripture, to not just take kind of the, the stereotypical fundamentalist response of just, that's wrong, I'm not going to think about it, I'm going to stick my head in the sand and not think false ideas. But rather what Paul does is he winsomely confronts the idea and shows from biblical principles how the idea is wrong. And so again, we confront this false teaching with biblical doctrine. But then finally, we confront the, the false teaching not just with doctrine, not just with understanding the truth of the word, but we confront false teaching with biblical living, with seeking to actually live out our faith in the world. Look at uh, verse 5, the final verse of our text today. He says that the, the food that God has given, that it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, the word of God in prayer, that this is the very the heart of Christian living, not just the, the ideas of the mind, 
But he's saying that in this mysterious way that apart from the word and God and, and prayer, that our food actually would still be unclean. But he, say, he says that what would be formally unsanctified is sanctified through the word and prayer. And I mean, this is part of the reason that you see the example in scripture of praying before meals, that there's a sense of, of dedicating the food to the Lord. Uh, it's the, the prayer that, that kids learn often is of bless this food to our bodies and our bodies to your service. And, and so as we think about the way that we face false teaching, that, that it comes down to something as, as simple as just the way we pray before meals, the way we give thanks, the way we're in the word with our family, the way we express that thankfulness around us, that it's something that is very much lived out in the course of our lives that we seek to be, to be faithful at mealtimes, throughout the day, throughout our, our lives, seeking to, to live. And that that undermines, that, that takes away all of the pores, all of the teeth out of any sort, sort of false teaching. But then finally, of course, the, the way to, we said, biblical living is, is through Jesus Christ, that we abide in Christ, that, that he is the way, he is the answer he is the one who, who gives us freedom. He is the one who calls us to himself. He is the one who protects us and guides us. And, and so the way to, to avoid the, the snare of false teaching is always to have Jesus at the center, to have our eyes on Christ, knowing his love for us, knowing his sacrificial death on the cross for us, knowing the, the, the hope and the life that is offered to those who trust in him. Uh, knowing the freedom that we have to love and to serve through what he has done for us, keeping our eyes on Jesus as our foundation and our rock and our redeemer. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for, yes, the truth of biblical doctrine, but we thank you for something as, as simple as praying before our, our meal. Uh, that, that you call us to, to faithfulness, to, to sanctify our food, not through our own holiness, but through your word. We thank you for Christ who has called us who is to himself, who has given us new life, who has adopted us. So, Father, we pray that, that we would not submit again to a yoke of slavery, uh, that you would show us when we are ourselves trying to impose rules on other people, that you don't say anywhere in the Bible. Um, guard us against that. Um, guard us against the danger of, of trying to ignore your rules or in the Bible and say they don't matter. Uh, but also, Lord, guard us against thinking that, that we can earn our way to you through keeping rules or through just being a good person. Uh, we know that the way to you is through faith, through trusting in Jesus. And so we pray you would work that in us and that you would keep us firm and established in your gospel and your word and your church against all contrary ideas that would seek to draw us away. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.